Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. The October crisis was a watershed moment in the history of Canada. Half a century ago, the country watched as troops went into the streets and the Quebec sovereignty movement was thrust into the spotlight for Canadians across the nation. Today I'm looking at the lead up to the crisis, the crisis itself, and what happened afterwards. Now there's a lot of French names in this, obviously, and I'm actually doing my best to learn French right now and I think I'm getting a pretty good handle on it. Nonetheless, I do apologize if I pronounce any names incorrectly. While the crisis in October of 1970 tends to be the main focus, the origins of the crisis itself go back to 1963, when the FLQ, also known as the Front de Liberation de Quebec, was formed as Quebec was going through major political, cultural, and social changes. Quebec was going through those major changes in the 1950s and 60s, Education had become secularized, and the state funding of schools rose from $200 million in 1960 to $1 billion in 1970. Hydro-Quebec became state-owned and the largest employer in the province, and the state, rather than the church, became the main instrument for the aspirations of residents of Quebec. Universal health care and a provincial pension plan were introduced, and capital was put forward into growing francophone businesses. There was a growing political movement for change, but some we're looking at more radical means of change. It was a time around the world when anti-colonial sentiments were high and communist governments were coming into power, including in Cuba. The FLQ, inspired by the many political movements worldwide, wanted a Quebec that had liberated itself from what they saw as an Anglophone domination and capitalism and they saw the path to that through armed struggle. With that in mind, the FLQ chose to attack the symbols of what they saw as English colonialism with the hope that Quebecers would follow their example. Often lost in the shuffle when talking about the October crisis is that over 200 bombings took place, with dozens of robberies. In fact, the first meeting of the founding members of the FLQ in February 1963 was celebrated by throwing a Molotov cocktail through the window of CKGM, an English radio station in Montreal. Between March and April 1963, six bombings took place in the city. More often than not, the prime target were mailboxes in Westmount, a rich Anglophone area of Montreal, as well as the head office of the CIBC, a federal government bookstore, and the residence of Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau. The Montreal Eaton's bookstore and several Canadian Armed Forces facilities were also targeted. The worst bombing happened on February 13, 1963, when a bomb was detonated in the Montreal Stock Exchange, leaving 27 people injured. Through all of the bombings, six people would die. These acts were not without consequences. By the time the new decade of the 1970s was dawning, 20 FLQ members were in prison and four were sentenced to between 6 to 12 years after pleading guilty to manslaughter in the death of a watchman in the Canadian Armed Forces Recruitment Centre in April 1963. Pierre-Paul Geoffrey alone was responsible for 31 bombings, including the Montreal Stock Exchange, and he would receive 124 life sentences plus 25 years. At the time, it was the longest prison sentence ever handed down in the British Commonwealth. Also by this point, the FLQ had split into two cells based out of Montreal. The South Shore gang would become the Chenier cell, led by Paul Rose. 
The liberation cell was led by Jacques Lecteau, and that is the cell that would escalate things in the October crisis initially. On October 5th, two members of the liberation cell went to the home of British diplomat James Cross, disguised as delivery men bringing a package for him. The maid let them in, and they quickly pulled out a rifle and revolver and kidnapped Cross. What is known for sure is that 49-year-old James Richard Cross was abducted as he left his downtown Montreal home for the British government office about four hours ago. His wife apparently sought four men, three with machine guns and one with a revolver, forced Mr. Cross into a taxi. Then someone called the British Trade Commission office, but so far it hasn't released any details or made any comment. In Ottawa, a British spokesman says it's only speculation that the kidnapping is connected with a political movement. However, in what may be a related incident, the group calling itself the Association for the Release of Political Prisoners said it would hold a news conference later this afternoon at which it would present a list of demands for the release of what are called political prisoners. We don't know if the kidnapping and the news conference are tied in with each other. All that can be learned from the Canadian government is that several departments, including the Prime Minister's Office, Justice People, the RCMP, and External Affairs, are working on the case. The British Information Service in Toronto says Mr. Cross has never worked in the Middle East. He's been with the British Board of Trade since 1947, serving in New Delhi, Halifax, Winnipeg, and Kuala Lumpur, before taking on the job as Senior Trade Commissioner in Montreal. In Toronto, police are now moving to tighten security around British government offices in this city. So for the moment, in the absence of further contact with the abductors, the afternoon news conference could be, and I repeat, could be, the only source of hard information about the kidnapping. This is Ken McCraith in Toronto. Demands were sent to the authorities, and for the release of Cross, the Liberation Cell wanted 23 imprisoned FLQ members released, the broadcast and publication of the FLQ manifesto, $500,000, and safe passage to either Algeria or Cuba. The kidnappers stated that the Quebec government was given 24 hours to comply. While the government rejected the demands, they stated they were willing to negotiate. And one of the largest manhunts in Canadian history would be initiated at this point. Over the next several days, 30 individuals were arrested in a series of dawn raids. On October 8th, French newspapers published the FLQ Manifesto, which was also read on Radio Canada. René Lévesque, the leader of the Parti Québécois, published an article that implored the FLQ not to use violence or hurt Cross or anyone else. The Liberation Cell then provided proof that Cross was alive and they extended their deadline to October 10th at 6pm local time. Just before the deadline was reached, Jerome Choquette, the Justice Minister for the province, announced that the Liberation Cell would be granted safe passage out of Canada in exchange for the release of Cross, but no other demands would be met. The deadline would pass and two members of the Chenier cell would arrive at the home of Pierre Laporte, cabinet minister and deputy premier, where he was playing football in the front yard with his nephew, Claude Laporte. Laporte was quickly kidnapped, escalating the crisis even more. Soon after the kidnapping was discovered, elected officials in Quebec began flooding the police with requests for protection. Claude Laporte spoke with CBC about what he saw. Well, we were playing football and... Uh... Uh, the car stopped just in front of my uncle, and so two uh, two men uh, get out of the the car and uh, and uh, said to, to him to enter the car with uh, two guns to uh, release mitraillette. 
Did they have machine guns or, or uh, pistols? Handguns? Non, une mitrailleuse, c'est quoi? Machine gun. Machine gun. And uh, what did they say? I don't know what they said, but they, they, they pushed him uh, with, with uh, the machine gun. Mm -hmm. they, they pushed him into the car? In the car, yes. yes. What did, he, did they say anything to you? And to no, he, just, he was surprised and uh, he just entered in the car. Yeah. Who had the football? Uh, he pitched to me the football. He threw the football out to you and then they, they just came right out. Were there other men in the car? Yes, there were two or three in front and two. Uh, what did you do then? Uh, I, I I walked to the car and uh, I uh, I saw the, the man inside, but I cannot saw them uh, see them very well because they they were hoods um, of the faces. Yes, and uh, they, they have, they have uh, yes. kerchief. Yes, kerchiefs over their faces. Yes, from the nose. From the nose to yeah, all of them did, eh? No, just from here, just from here. But all the people, all the men. Uh, I didn't say uh, just the 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 two uh, the two. Yes. On October 11th, CBC broadcast a letter from captivity from Laporte that was sent to Quebec Premier Robert Barossa. That same day, the Chenet cell issued a demand stating they would kill Laporte unless all seven FLQ demands were met by 10 p.m. that night. Just before 10 p.m. Premier Barossa went on the radio and announced that he would not meet the demands, but that he was open to negotiations. The Chenet cell postponed Laporte's execution. On October 12th, General Giles Turcot, a veteran of the Second World War, would send troops from the Royal 22nd Regiment to guard federal property in the province, which had been requested by the federal government. Robert Lemieux, a Montreal lawyer, would be chosen by the FLQ to negotiate the release of Cross and Laporte that same day. On October 13th, CBC reporter Tim Ralph would question Pierre Elliott Trudeau about the heavy military presence in the city of Ottawa. The exchange has gone down in Canadian lore, and I remember learning about it in his social studies. Trudeau would respond with, well, just watch me. But rather than relate this, it's better to hear it directly. You know, I, uh, I think it's more important to uh, get rid of those who are committing violence against the total society and those who are trying to run the government through a parallel power by establishing their authority by kidnapping and blackmail. And I think it's our duty as a government to protect government officials and, uh, and, uh, and uh, important people in our society against being uh, used as tools in this blackmail. Now, you don't agree to this, but uh, I'm sure that, once again, with hindsight, you would have probably found it preferable if Mr. Cross and Mr. Laporte had been protected from kidnapping which they weren't because these, the steps we're taking now weren't taken. But uh, even with your hindsight, I don't see how you can, uh, can uh, deny that. No, I, I still go back to the choice that you, you have to make in the kind of society that you yeah, live well, in. Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed, but it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any feminine. cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. Robert Demers, who is an official with the Quebec Liberal Party, began to negotiate with Robert Lemieux. On October 15th, Quebec asked for the assistance of the armed forces to help with the local police. Within an hour, 1,000 soldiers would be deployed around Montreal. 
A rally would be held in support of the FLQ in the city that afternoon, with 3,000 students calling on the government to meet the demands of the FLQ. The rally was organized by Lemieux, and Labour leader Michael Chantron states, We are going to win because there are more boys ready to shoot members of Parliament than there are policemen. This begins to worry the rest of Canada, who are seeing Quebec as a possible focal point for an insurrection. In the evening, possibly because of the growing tensions in the rally, the government announces that it will release five FLQ prisoners on parole and guaranteed both FLQ cells safe passage out of Canada in exchange for the return of the hostages. Spokesmen for the FLQ were permitted to carry their message to the University of Montreal and won support from the Student Assembly. Self-styled FLQ terrorist Pierre Vallier, who is out on bail, lawyer Raymond Lemieux, and Labour leader Michel Chartrain urged professors and students to organize themselves into a real show of strength. They claim the destiny of Quebec is now in the hands of the people. Not all 1,500 students at the meeting welcomed the idea. But there was no real opposition. The meeting was filled with a radical element. The students voted in support of exchanging the 23 so-called political prisoners for the lives of James Cross and Pierre Laporte. They agreed that the FLQ manifesto should be circulated among the population. They opposed what they called police repression, and they voted to boycott classes at the University of Montreal until the kidnapping crisis has been resolved. Tonight, they plan a mass rally to get the support of students at the University of Quebec and the large teenage population in junior colleges and high schools. In other developments, 10 prominent Quebecers, including René Levesque, the editor of Le Devoir, Claude Ryan, and union leader Louis Leberge have asked the Quebec government to set free the 23 prisoners. They said it's urgent that the FLQ demands be met in order that social and political liberty in Quebec can be guaranteed. On October 16th, something would happen that has never happened in Canadian history, before or since. The War Measures Act would be implemented due to what was called the State of Apprehended Insurrection in Quebec. The act, which gives the government sweeping powers, had never been used in peacetime before, only during the First and Second World Wars. Under the abilities given by the act, which suspends habeas corpus, the FLQ is outlawed immediately, normal civil liberties are suspended, membership in the FLQ becomes a criminal offense, and arrests and detentions without charge are authorized. Anyone arrested under the Act was denied due process and could be held for seven days without any charges, and some could be held for 21 days. Prime Minister Trudeau would go on television to announce the implementation of the Act. I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis, when violent and fanatical men are attempting to destroy the unity and the freedom of Canada. One aspect of that crisis is the threat which has been made on the lives of two innocent men. These are matters of the utmost gravity, and I want to tell you what the government is doing to deal with them. What has taken place in Montreal in the past two weeks is not unprecedented. It has happened elsewhere in the world on several recent occasions. It could happen elsewhere within Canada. But Canadians have always assumed that it could not happen here and as a result, we are doubly shocked that it has. Our assumption may have been naive, but it was understandable. Understandable because democracy flourishes in Canada, 
understandable because individual liberty is cherished in Canada. Notwithstanding these conditions, partly because of them, it has now been demonstrated to us by a few misguided persons just how fragile a democratic society can be if democracy is not prepared to defend itself and just how vulnerable to blackmail are tolerant, compassionate people. Because the kidnappings and the blackmail are most familiar to you, I shall deal with them first. The governments of Canada and of Quebec have been told by groups of self-styled revolutionaries that they intend to murder in cold blood two innocent men unless their demands are met. The kidnappers claim they act as they do in order to draw attention to instances of social injustice. But I ask them whose attention are they seeking to attack? The government of Canada? The government of Quebec? Every government in this country is well aware of the existence of deep and important social problems. And every government, to the limit of its resources and ability, is deeply committed to their solution but not by kidnappings and bombings, by hard work. And if any doubt exists about the good faith or the ability of any government, there are opposition parties ready and willing to be given an opportunity to govern. In short, there is available in Canada everywhere an effective mechanism to change governments by peaceful means. It has been employed by disenchanted voters again and again. The decision is widely criticized in the House of Commons with Progressive Conservative leader Robert Stanfield, former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, and NDP leader Tommy Douglas all speaking out against it. Douglas would say that the act was similar to using a sledgehammer to crack a peanut. In other areas of Canada, there would be moves to limit what people could say or do. This news report comes from when the act was initiated. The Police Act is invoked in Quebec, and all police and army personnel come under the command of the Quebec Provincial Police Director. The headquarters building in East End, Montreal, has become the nerve center for the largest police operation in Canadian history. The army personnel are also being used to guard the many consular buildings in Montreal and have been deployed to patrol the grounds at mansions owned by prominent Montrealers. Soldiers carrying machine guns trample the grass at the home of Senator Molson. Dressed in their camouflage fatigue greens, the troops are sometimes hard to spot in the shrubbery. The radio and television tower atop Mount Royal is a combined police and military guard. In the early days of the FLQ, cells tried to blow up the tower with a dynamite time bomb, but the mechanism was defective. Four units are on duty in the Montreal area. The men are drawn from the Royal 22nd Regiment of Valcartier, paratroopers of the Canadian Airborne Regiment of Edmonton, and of the Royal Canadian Regiment, stationed at Camp Gagetown, New Brunswick. Also in the area, a contingent from the Canadian Armoured Regiment. All troops are equipped with only light arms. Meantime, police were kept busy raiding the homes of suspected FLQ members or sympathizers. The arrest total mounted rapidly after proclamation of the emergency measures and is now nearing 300. Many of those have been questioned and released, but the two big raids to free the kidnapped victims remains a hope that has so far eluded police. At military installations used as bases, the troops react negatively to television cameras. The word is to get lost or get arrested. At some of the armories, the men in battle gear are supplemented, particularly at night, by military police. In the early days, the FLQ planted bombs at many armories, killing a night watchman 
in one instance. In Toronto, a school board considered a motion that would ban teachers from speaking about the FLQ in their classrooms. While in Vancouver, the Vancouver Liberation Front, which was sympathetic to the FLQ, had seven members arrested for distributing the FLQ manifesto. Also in British Columbia, Premier W.A.C. Bennett and his cabinet approved a regulation that banned any teachers in the province, including post-secondary professors, from expressing sympathy for the FLQ. The November 2, 1970 order stated, No person teaching or instructing our youth in educational institutions receiving government support shall continue in the employment of the educational institution if they advocate the policies of the FLQ. Vancouver Mayor Tom Campbell would use the entire situation to announce that he would use emergency powers to push hippies and draft dodgers out of the city, although he never actually pursued this. Around Canada, university newspapers also faced censorship and police scrutiny for publishing commentary on the FLQ. The Ontarian, a university newspaper in Guelph, published a special section on the FLQ manifesto with the War Measures Act included. Students who ran the newspaper took it to the printer on October 16th, but instead of printing, the manager of the printing press contacted the police. In the evening, two plainclothed officers came and took the master copies of the newspaper. An investigation was then conducted on the newspaper to see if they had violated the sedition section of the criminal code. On October 19th, the students attempted to publish another edition that explained their side of the story, but the printer told them he would not print that issue either. On October 21st, the master copies were given to the RCMP, who would then consult with the Department of Justice. Nothing happened from this point, but the confiscated issues and master copies were never returned. Minister of Justice John Turner, who had gone to become Prime Minister and just died this year, would defend the act on television. Well, we're trying to get at a specific problem, and we don't want to use those regulations, nor should they be used, beyond combating that particular problem. Uh, the only additional powers are the power to arrest, the power to search without warrant, uh, the power to detain, and restricting the power of bail without the consent of the Attorney General in those specific offenses of violent sedition, uh, terrorism, and uh, membership in the FLQ. It, it doesn't go any farther than that. And the ordinary processes of law, uh, jury trial, uh, presumption of innocence, uh, appeal, uh, rules of evidence, sanctioned by the British common law, all these uh, provisions still apply. This is a very restricted measure and is not nearly as widely drawn as members of the opposition have tried to portray it. On October 17th, it is announced that Pierre Laporte had been executed. He had been strangled and then stuffed into the trunk of a car that was abandoned at the St. Hubert Airport near Montreal. Shortly after uh, the car was discovered, uh, where the minister's body was in the trunk, Police sealed off the entire area around St. Hubert Airfield. It was impossible for anyone to get past the police line. The only person apparently who did see the car was a reporter for radio station CKAC in Montreal. The radio station received several calls during the evening uh, saying that Mr. Laporte had been murdered. The uh, station finally was told to go to Place des Arts, the cultural center in Montreal, and find a communique. The communique was retrieved, and on it, in effect, there was a map telling them where the car containing the minister's body could be found. It was right by the fence at St. Hubert Airfield, near a private airline company. Reporters were 
asked for identification as security was tightened around the area, especially after the body of the labor minister was found in the trunk of the car. Reporters milled about, but to no avail, no one got through the line uh, close to the car. The car was the one used to kidnap the minister seven days ago outside his home in the south shore opposite Montreal. It is almost impossible to overstate the impact the assassination had. In Canadian history, only three sitting politicians have been killed. The first was Thomas Darcy McGee in 1868. The second was George Brown in 1880. And Laporte was the third, almost a century later. Within two days of the implementation of the War Measures Act, 250 people had been arrested. On October 18th, warrants are issued for Mark Carboneau and Paul Rose in connection with the murder. Additional warrants are issued for other members of the Cheney cell, and by October 20th, 1,628 raids have been conducted by police under the War Measures Act. On October 26th, Barbara Cross, wife of James Cross, is broadcasted on CKLM, stating, To those holding my husband, I wish to express my confidence that, as he is the victim of circumstances, he will be treated well. I entreat them to free him without delay. On November 2nd, a $150,000 reward is offered by Quebec and the Canadian government for information leading to the arrest of the kidnappers. Four days later, police raid an apartment and arrest Bernard Lortet. The other members of the Chenet cell had hid behind a false wall in the closet at the apartment and would leave the building the next day. By November 13th, 46 people had been detained under the authority of the War Measures Act, and a week later, a letter from Cross, dated November 15th, is sent that confirms he is still alive. After the arrest, Jacques Trudel and his wife Louise would negotiate the release of Cross in exchange for safe passage of all members of the Liberation Cell, including Jacques, Louise, and their infant daughter, to Cuba. Cross would emerge from a Montreal North apartment where he had been kept for 59 days, having lost 22 pounds, but in good health. He would state that he had not been harmed and had been treated well by his captors. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. I don't want to say very much. I'm still rather tired. But what I first would like to say is what a wonderful sense of relief it is to be back in the normal world after eight weeks of close captivity. And I think the one thing that this dreadful period has given me is a sense of the importance of the ordinary simple things of life which most people take for granted. The ability to, to live with one's family, to talk to one's friends, uh, to breathe fresh air. I think we, 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 we all take these as, as sort of normal everyday things, part of our lives. We don't put a price on them. But when we're deprived of them, suddenly one realizes how much they mean and, and, and how important they are and how little other things matter. I'm now on my way to join my wife, and I hope that I will be permitted to spend with her a few weeks, a few quiet weeks, um, to rest and recuperate, after which we can resume our normal Life. On December 28th, Paul and Jacques Rose, along with Francis Simard, were arrested on a farm near Montreal. 
Along with Bernard Lortier, they were charged with the kidnapping and murder of Laporte. Paul Rose was sentenced to life in prison, as was Simar, while Lortier received 20 years. Jacques Rose received eight years for being an accessory after the fact. As for the members of the Liberation Cell, they all eventually returned to Canada from Cuba. Trudeau and his wife, Louise, were sentenced to two years in prison in 1979. Nigel Barry Hammer was sentenced to one year, while Mark Carboneau received 20 months. In December 1970, a poll was held to see the opinion of Canadians in regards to the War Measures Act. It found that 89% of English Canadians were in support of the Act, while 86% of French-speaking Canadians were in favour. The War Measures Act implementation would come to an end at the beginning of January, and over the course of its use, 497 people were arrested, with 435 being released, and 62 being charged, with 32 being held without bail. In the spring of 1971, the provincial government announced that it would pay up to $30,000 in compensation to 100 people who were unjustly detained. Over 3,000 searches were also conducted under the Act. Among the army units deployed, the Royal 22nd Regiment, known as the Van Dues, were deployed to protect buildings in Montreal under Operation SA. Overall, the Canadian Army saw no action during the crisis, but one soldier was killed when he tripped over his loaded gun while on guard duty and accidentally shot himself. Even without any action from the Army, many Canadians were disturbed by the sight of tanks on the lawns of Parliament. The War Measures Act would be repealed in 1988 and would be replaced with the Emergencies Act, which is more limited and it requires cabinet orders and regulations to be reviewed, and anything done under the new act had to be subject to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Canadian Bill of Rights. As for the FLQ, their support would take a serious hit due to the October crisis. Over the next 13 months, nearly two dozen FLQ operatives would be arrested, and by the 1980s, the organization was gone. There would be a shift from the violent means to obtain sovereignty and a push towards political action for independence. In 1976, the Parti Québécois would come to power in the province, taking 70 of 110 seats and staying in power until 1985, then coming back into power in 1994 until 2003, and again from 2012 to 2014. The Bloc Québécois would rise in prominence as well, forming in 1991 and eventually becoming the second or third largest party in the House of Commons from 1993 to 2011. Following the crisis, the federal government would transform the Canadian forces into a more internal security force for the country, which was no longer capable of fighting a major conventional war as it once had. Half a century later, in 2020, there are calls for an apology from Ottawa for the use of the War Measures Act. When asked about the apology, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, son of Pierre Trudeau who implemented the act, said, There is no question that the events of October 1970 had a difficult impact on many Quebecers, but I think we need to remember, first and foremost, that this particular anniversary is going to be very difficult for the families of Pierre Laporte. As for Cross, he is still alive as of this episode, having reached the age of 99 on September 29th, and he has said that he has never forgotten his ordeal, and he has never forgiven his captors. I hope you enjoyed that look at the October crisis, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx.
just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, the History of Rights, CTV, Wikipedia, Guelph Today, Canada's History, and the CBC. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.